So Jeff, we're going to jump right into the entree this week. Uh, we're joined by a professor at Boise State University in the business school, Sam Everick. Uh, sir, how are you doing this afternoon? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing fantastic. I'm, I'm happy to be here again. Uh, happy to... Um, you know, happy to happy to come back on the show, and it's been a real busy week, so we'll have plenty to talk about. We're glad you're back. Uh, go Minutemen! They had a great season again up there at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, we did go back and find out they were the oh, oldest team to the first team football team to use Aggies. So hopefully, you got a chance to listen to that and some in depth research we did on the name. But uh, Jeff, you brought this topic up during the uh, the week we were planning, and it looks like there's a lot of antitrust flying around. And something is happening with the NCAA, NIL, and college sports. So what, what did you hear, and uh, what do you want to ask Professor uh, so we can get a, get a better idea of what's happening? Yeah, so there was a House hearing um, regarding NIL and, and potential rules regarding that. And interestingly enough, the same day, the DOJ uh, Department of Justice joined multiple states' attorney generals and attorneys general in a lawsuit involving transfer rules and those rules potentially violating antitrust, which is a busy, busy day um, during this past week involving uh, legal concerns with college athletes. So I think kind of, oh. yeah, it's kind of funny. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please, Professor, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no problem. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny. I said, you know, it was a busy week in, in college sports law last week, um, but it was actually just a busy day, really. I mean, Thursday was kind of just a heavy hitter with, like you said, the House hearing and um, kind of the, the really just con really considerable, really kind of really incredibly important um, new developments with this lawsuit, which has been going on for a while. But this really anties up. This really just raises the ante for all of it. And really heightens the, the risk of the NCAA if they choose to continue this lawsuit. Um, and I, I think it's one that makes this lawsuit go from incredibly interesting to extremely interesting, which, you know, from my, from my perspective, is uh, it definitely, it definitely makes it one to watch. So, Professor, maybe you can kind of walk us through some of the background radiation, so to speak. Why would it be considered antitrust for for an employee to be told they can't go from one job to another? And why does it skirt that antitrust if they tell a player, well, you're at school A, but you can maybe transfer to school B without penalty? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of funny, just to give a quick primer for antitrust, um, for anyone who uh, isn't kind of aware of that legal topic area. What antitrust essentially means is that you can't restrict competition. You can't restrict economic competition between different actors in um, a particular economic market. Um, you can't have contract co combinations or conspiracies that restrict trade in that in that sense. So what the argument is is that if you're restricting college athletes who, you know, they you know they, they get schools to economically compete, um, they get NAL actors to economically compete. They get all these different parties to economically compete for their labor services, for their services as um, either an athlete or a you know someone engaging in NIL. Uh, if you're kind of restricting them in any kind of meaningful, unreasonable way, that could be valid of the, of the antitrust laws. So for this in particular, for this lawsuit in particular, what the states are arguing, what the 
um, now the Department of Justice is arguing, is that by holding an athlete in one school, uh, you know, without reasonable justification, uh, and, and kind of punishing them for trying to move to a different school, that is harming their, their that's harming their ability to economically compete in the market. It's harming their ability to economically compete nationwide for these different NIL deals. It's harming their ability to economically compete for maybe a better offer at a different school. Um, and with NIL, um, you know, I, I think beforehand, even before NIL, there was there was some litigation involving the transfer portal and some litigation that kind of made it seem a little dicey whether uh, after Alston it would continue, whether uh, whether being able to, you know, being able to, the NCAA being able to enforce the transfer restrictions would be able to continue. But certainly now with NIL and the amount of economic activities that's now gone into kind of this college sports labor market, you're certainly seeing a very difficult road for the NCAA to be able to enforce these restrictions. So, Jeff, I know you had pulled up a couple of recent court cases, particularly from UCLA QB Chase Griffin. This is the second in a line of UCLA players, particularly Ed O'Bannon back in 2009 um, and his anti uh uh, antitrust web or lawsuit that he brought forward. What what happened here with UCLA, Jeff? And then beyond that, what benefits or quote unquote compensation was he looking to challenge in his case? Yeah. So um, Griffin was on the hill um, with a number of other athletes, and one of the questions that um, some folks in Congress asked him is, "Does he believe he is an employee?" And he, interestingly, say he can't say legally that's something that would defer to some somewhere like the NLRB or um, kind of somewhere else legally, but he feels like he is an employee, which becomes really interesting when you talk antitrust because there are, in some employment contracts, you have things like NDA, you have things like non-competes for different periods of time, and you could have collectively bargained restrictions like you see in pro leagues um, in the U.S. over going between teams, which when we think about the antitrust um, consideration for NIL and transfer rules is really interesting if you say, okay, is this person an employee or not? And there is, I know um, this is some research that Sam had um, done that some of the benefits under current U.S. employment law that are received via by college athletes can count towards wages legally in certain circumstances. There are some that can, some that can't. Um, but it's really interesting when you start asking from a legal perspective, are student athletes actually employees? A lot of things that occur look a lot like employment. You're doing work, you're getting management from coaches in exchange for benefits. <laughs> so, Professor, I have a question about this. So, he's he's in front of Congress, he's answering questions, and he says, I have to defer to the NLRB, which in some circles, it's a boogeyman of, say, you know, the private sector, they may think it's some sort of you know, they do things is how they kind of view it. But who would actually make the determination on if someone who is a student athlete is an employee? Who would that go to? 
Well, there are a number of different there are a number of different entities that could do that. Um, so uh, Chase is absolutely right. Um, the NLRB is going to be one of the main actors that are going to be really deciding whether college athletes are employees. Uh, there are two cases pending in front of the NLRB right now. In fact, where in fact one of them, uh, yeah, I was rec recording this on on Sunday, the day after on Monday. Um, uh, we're going to restart the uh, a trial involving University of Southern California and their football players regarding whether they are employees and whether they have the right to unionize. There's also another one involving Dartmouth College and their basketball players who the basketball the basketball players themselves are looking to form a union. And one of the key kind of concerns here, one of the key issues uh, for the NLRB to decide here, uh, for an administrative law judge of the NLRB to decide, is whether these Dartmouth College players are, are employees. So the NLRB is certainly going to have a big role in this. We're also seeing it kind of on the wage and hour side in the federal courtroom, where in the Johnson v. NCAA case, which I'm, I'm sure if you're following college football, you've probably heard of that case at least a little bit. Um, that's in Pennsylvania right now, and that's involving um, relief plaintiffs at Villanova football player and a number of different athletes as well, where the district court actually said, yes, it is plausible under federal wage and hour law, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, that college athletes are employees. So one of those two entities could certainly be the one to decide it. Um, the, uh, the Department of Labor could also step in at some point and say that we think that college athletes are employees. We're going to sue on their behalf, even if you know some of these college athletes don't even want us to do it. They have the power, they have the inherent power to you know prosecute uh, Fair Labor Standards Act violations on their own. And of course, the NCAA could, could uh, kind of acknowledge it on their own, but you know, whether they do that or not is uh, probably unlikely. So, Jeff, you did specifically have this, and I thought this was interesting, that there are allowable compensation under FLSA, but there's others that can't be forced. Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, this is, this is Sam's research. So, Sam, let me know if uh, I am off base in any of this. But if you, anything that you voluntarily say, I'd like this, voluntarily take a benefit from your employer in lieu you can in lieu of a cash payment but it's of benefit so something like a um room and board um you have actual direct cash payments to employees those are those are things um that the legal um the current case law has shown okay that can count so you know Sometimes you'll have free food provided to people that work in restaurants or some other housing that's provided in certain cases. And if that is not part of your job, that can be counted towards wages. If something is part of your job, so for example, if you have to be on site and they provide housing on site, because you have to be part on site as part of your job, that can't count. So something like tuition, where because you have to be a college student to be a college athlete, that Interestingly, from the case law, saying that you, you'd provide in some of your research, that is not something that can be counted towards a benefit or compensation. Yeah, that's that's a um, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Um, yeah, that, that's a that's a really good summary of, of it. Um, kind of the specifics of it. Uh, it it's a provision um, that's Section Three M of the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, and it, uh, yeah, like you said, it in kind, any kind of in-kind compensation. So that means any kind of compensation that's not cash. That is any kind of, uh, like you said, room and board, meals, uh, scholarships, anything like that. 
can potentially be considered towards minimum wage and can be counted credited towards minimum wage and overtime. Um, and like you said, voluntary is one of the key elements here. Another interesting and important element here, um, aside from just being voluntary, so it's not like you know the employer is kind of forcing on you uh, to say, we don't want to give you cash, we're going to give you these in-kind benefits instead. No, it has to be something where the employee says, I, I am happy to take this instead of cash. I am willing to take this instead of cash. I'm doing this of my own volition. I'm taking this instead of cash of my own volition instead of kind of having the employer kind of thrust it upon me, have it kind of forced it upon me. But the other element here that's also really interesting is, um, aside from you also mentioned that has to be kind of part of the job, is that it also has to be, oh, that's right. Yeah. So it has to be voluntary and it also has to be something that primarily benefits the employee. So it can't be something where it's, it, it's something that's actually kind of a required part of, of being the job of something that's required uh, something that is actually kind of necessary to do your job like one of the most common things here that employee employers try to credit that employers try to get away with and the courts are going to kind of knock down is work uniforms where they say you know we're gonna we're gonna provide you this work uniform but we're gonna take it out of your salary we're gonna take it out of your benefits and courts have uniformly said no that that doesn't work uh, because it's something that you are requiring for part of this job, which also goes to the voluntary voluntary element that's part of that as well. And that's where, um, you know, Jeff was kind of talking about kind of my view about some of the benefits that college athletes receive as part of their, their thing. And in particular, scholarships, because there's some case law, there's some really interesting case law regarding gaming licenses, regarding um, if you're working at a casino and you have to have a license from the state in order to work at this casino in order to kind of engage in these gambling activities on behalf of your employer to you know, to, to deal cards and blackjack or something like that. Um, those licenses are something that will be paid by the employer, except when the casinos try to credit it, uh, according to the state's law, um, the, um, the, it's the same kind of thing as the, as the work uniforms, where the, uh, the courts are going to step in and say, no, it's not something that is, um, it, you know, it, it may be something that's voluntary. It may be something where your employee is very happy to get that instead of, instead of being paid, but it's something that primarily benefits you because it allows your employee to be able to do, do the job. And those case laws are, those, that case law is really interesting because what the, uh, casinos would argue is that, well, there's so many other benefits to these employees being able to get this gaming license. They don't have to use it in our particular company, like a, like a work uniform. You know, work uniform, it's not something where you're, you're just going to wear it out in the street and have benefits from it outside of work. But for here, the, the casinos were arguing, you'll be able to go to different jobs and they won't have to pay for your license. You won't have to pay for your license. You can just immediately start to work and that makes it a lot more mobile. So it's kind of, it, I, I think it's really analogous to that when you have athletic scholarships, simply because of the fact that the NCAA requires enrollment in a degree, in a degree program to be able to uh, to be able to play college sports, if you know, if, if they didn't, if they didn't necessarily force that, if it was something where uh, having a scholarship, being able to get a degree, was something that is legitimately, I mean, it's obviously a benefit of, on its own, but something that was just strictly tied to, we're giving this to you because it's something that will help you, then that's something that you know might be creditable. But because it's something where it's we're giving you the scholarship in part so that you can pay for school because you can need you need to be in a degree program. That's where it kind of runs afoul potentially of this Section 3M guideline. So, Professor, I have a question here. We talk a lot about how name, image, and likeness is something that previously was not. It, it was verboten, 
until recently with a lot of recent changes we're now allowing student athletes to to be able to participate in name image and likeness how is the name image and likeness framework going to intersect with this antitrust framework going forward because a school can say well we're allowing you to go take these pictures with our alumni base and you're able to charge for that or whatever the circumstances may be commercials etc that's a benefit to you that you're getting from the school. How does that look going forward? I think it's huge. I think it's antitrust law requires an economic market. It requires some sort of restraint on an economic market. And previously, uh, the NCAA and a lot of this antitrust litigation, pre-Austin and pre-NIL, was able to argue that college sports is this amateur, is this truly amateur environment. Um, it's, if anything, it's anti-commercial because you're taking money out of college sports by restraining competition. And, you know, what they're restricting is not an economic market because it's simply a market uh, where students are going to go to different schools. And that's not something that, according to the NCAA and according to the courts that agreed with them, is an economic market. But now we actually do have this economic competition. And this is something that extends well beyond antitrust law. In fact, a college basketball player at University of Illinois was able to get a scholar was able to get his uh, suspension for uh, potential criminal charges, uh, charges that have not been litigated, charges that have not been where he's been found guilty. He was able to argue not in not on antitrust, but on kind of the standard necessary to get a to get a preliminary injunction that uh, it's going to deeply affect him to to not be able to play college sports because it's going to force him because he's not going to be able to be able to profit off his name and likeness anymore. He's going to hurt his ability hmm. to get NIL deals. So now for the purpose of, of antitrust, for the purposes of these preliminary injunctions, the fact that you have these athletes who are able to say, I'm going to be losing money because of this restraint on my ability to enter into NIL deals, that becomes a lot more relevant in those two arenas. So Jeff, you had a com a uh, this here for tax purposes, I suppose we should is how we should put it. <laughs> Why don't you walk us through it, and then uh, for the purposes of the audio listener, explain what this next exercise might be. Yeah, so I think we've mentioned a couple of different uh, federal agencies. One that we didn't mention is the IRS, who does in fact have forms that you can petition as a potential employee to the IRS of saying, hey, I am an employee versus I am an independent contractor, which is important in tax law because that determines who is paying um, payroll tax. If you are self-employed, you pay your own payroll tax. If you are an employee of um, a company, they're paying your payroll tax, and that is actually pretty significant for uh tax implications. So because there exists a test that a government agency has, and because they put it in a nice, easy to fill out PDF on the internet, because the IRS is has a million forms, but they're all just on, they're free to grab because that's how uh, you got to get them to fill them out, to send them back in to uh, the IRS. We are going to fill out SS8, which is the determination of worker status for the purposes of federal employment taxes and income tax withholding. Um, so, oh, Blue's got it up. 
form kind of begins with with basically you give who the firm that you are performing services to and and your information. Um, so this is if you're petitioning saying, hey, firm should be paying my payroll taxes versus me paying my payroll taxes. And there are tests to determine, okay, what is the relationship? Is it you're providing services as a you know vendor to someone or are they employing you and how that relationship is different? So <laughs> Blue is filling out some uh, generic uh, information. Uh, we might put up on on our socials uh, some this form once we get it filled out. Um, Jeff, what's the area code in, in, in West Lafayette? 47906? Uh, the area code for phone numbers, phone calls? Oh, area code. Uh, area code is 765, I think. So, Professor, in, in a form like this, the information they're asking at the top, who's your employer, what's your trade, phone numbers, these, you know, standard boilerplate information of who is filling out the form and what relationship do you have with the employer. As we start to get down to our part one, our general information, now we start to ask who is the form being who, who is this form being completed for and to the best that you can explain what would the IRS be looking for in part 1 to de- to make a determination on whether or not they're accepting that this is an employee or this is a contractor Well for part 1 in particular they're just really going to be trying to get kind of a general feel of what this relationship looks like and Really, the, the key here for the entire forum, kind of just generally speaking, is all about what this relationship is. And, um, you know, the, one particular, you know, question that jumped out at me before was inform us of any current or past litigation concerning the worker status. So if you're a college athlete, for example, you'd have plenty of things to put there, including Berger v. NCAA, uh, you'd have uh, Johnson v. NCAA, you'd have Dawson v. NCAA, you'd have a number of different uh um, cases involving, you know, regarding independent contractor in the past. Obviously, for you know non-college athletes, there there might not be nearly as many, uh, <laughs> nearly as many kind of you know things to fill in here. But that's kind of an example of where the IRS is really going to be looking at this and saying, what is this relationship like? What does this relationship really look like? And uh, especially since you know the very first thing they ask you is this form is either being completed by the firm or the worker. Because really what this form is, is for is for either the firm or the worker to, to say, no, the other person should be able to, should be paying, paying these taxes. I'm not the one who should be paying these taxes. The other person should. So the firm's probably going to fill it out to say, no, the worker is actually an independent contractor and therefore they are responsible for their taxes. Or the worker's going to be filling out to, you know, for, for, the, for the firm and saying, no, the firm's actually responsible for this because I'm an employee. Um, so all, section one is really going to be looking towards uh, really defining that relationship. So question here, Professor, one of the things they have is explain your reasoning for filing. So you either receive a bill, you're under audit, or you're unable to receive workers' compensation benefits. That seems to, that jumps out to me because we have a lot of college athletes who may get injured or unable to perform their duties as as a student athlete for whatever number of reasons. Under current paradigm, a student athlete can't file for those types of benefits, workers' compensation. 
how would this or something like this play going forward if a football player twists his knee, tears his ACL, can't really play football anymore, but also can't get workers comp and they tell him, man, we're done once you have surgery with you? Well, it's funny because that's not necessarily a new thing. That's not a new thing at all. Um, back in the middle part of the, the 20th century, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, there was actually quite a bit of this litigation involving college athletes uh, you know, trying to get workers' compensation. Um, and in fact, the very first case that decided this in California actually found that, yes, the college athlete was an employee because the exchange of labor for an athletic scholarship was deemed to be an employment relationship. It's you know, payment in exchange for a service, which is the very kind of essence of, 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 of employment, um, at least the way they the way they saw this in this particular particular circumstance. But shortly after that, the California legislature actually passed a law to specifically exempt California to specifically exempt college athletes from uh, workers' compensation. A lot of other states have kind of mirrored this as well. So it, it's kind of interesting because now you know. It, there's a lot of talk with regarding NIL about like kind of this patchwork kind of thing where, you know, there would be different laws in different states and that might create kind of a mess here. That actually would be the case if, you know, in this kind of employment relationship because of, you know, way back when, when you had all these states that were kind of passing laws to exempt, exempt athletes from employment from worker compensation, well, now you'd actually have kind of those issues and some athletes would be able to get workers' comp and some athletes would not because... Their state law just doesn't allow it, just based on the, the based on uh, these statutes that were passed. So I want to ask one final question on section, or excuse me, part one before we move to part two. But the total number of workers who performed or are performing the same or similar services is a line that's on this. It's number three. A football team could have upwards of a hundred players on scholarship, off scholarship, walk-ons, etc. What would the IRS say if they get one of these and it says there's 99 other guys that are doing the same thing and then say maybe a couple other guys are like, would you fill out? I want to fill one out. So they start to see a trend. How, how would the IRS and by extension, the Department of Treasury adjudicate that? It would trend towards employment status. Uh, they would see that as a sign that they are employees and not independent contractors for a pretty simple reason. When businesses hire independent contractors, they're generally hiring just a few of them to be able to, to do kind of discrete services, to, um, to, to paint the building or to um, maybe do some janitorial services or to um, maybe, do, you know, maybe do some payroll training or something like that. They're not hiring them. They're not hiring a large number of them to perform kind of day-to-day tasks that are integral to the, to the, to the firm's business. Um, and, most of the employment tests, in fact, almost all of the employment tests, really go towards that as being one of the factors that the court or the IRS is going to look at. So the fact that you have, if, you know, as you said, you know, the fact that you have 100 football players and they're all kind of saying, you know, we all kind of do the same thing and they're all filing these forms, it would certainly point more towards employment status, though. I, I think the NCAA's counter argument would be, well, we're not trying to argue that they're independent contractors. We're arguing that they're you know, kind of this nebulous kind of third option to the student athlete, which is neither an employee nor an independent contractor, just someone who doesn't work at all. So the se- oh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I was going to move to part two, which is behavioral control, which kind of going down the questions, it talks about specific trainings and instructions, who's giving trainings, how you're giving the trainings, um, 
do you have to go to meetings? How often are you doing services? So this feels a really interesting, obvious area to to talk about. Well, you're obviously getting training from coaches and getting assignments from coaches, and you have to be specific places at specific times. And how would the IRS um, look at if you're answering saying, yeah, I have to be at meetings, I have to be on site, I get instructions from a coach very often. Who is an employee of the university. Who is, yeah. It would strongly point towards employment status. Uh, one of the key differences between employees and independent contractors, um, and this is at the very heart of just about every employment test, is the idea of control. Is the idea of who is the one who is kind of controlling the labor, controlling the the, the when, where, and how of when the labor is of, of how the labor is going to be employed, or is going to is going to it's going to happen. Um, so the fact, because you know, if you if you think about an independent contractor, if you think about some of the examples I was giving earlier, if you think about any other independent contractor that you may hire for various things, like if you hire a personal trainer, for example, you're not telling them how to do their job. You're not telling them. In fact, it's kind of the opposite for, for that particular situation. But you're not telling them the the, the, the when, where, and how necessarily. Uh, maybe you're going to ask them to go to a specific gym or something like that. But they'll have they'll probably have a say in it and. They're going to give you the workouts. They're going to, you know, kind of use their expertise a lot more than an employee would, because the employee is going to be directed by the employer. The employee is going to be uh, told to do certain things at a certain time in a certain way by the employer, and that's the control factor is just hugely. It's it's really really kind of the main part of the employment test. It's the main kind of crux of the the. How you how you distinguish between an employee and an independent contractor? Because the independent contractors are going to have substantially more control over how they perform the task because they are not actually working for the employee; they're working for themselves and doing a job for the employee, which is a, a different thing. So, Professor, I want to ask you this question because part three of this forum talks about financial control. Specifically, the first question is who provides the material? So are they coming from the, the, the employee? Are they coming from the firm? Let's say the case of a football player, you've got the ball, the equipment, helmets, pads, uniforms, cleats, and the field. All that's being provided by the university and or any other opposing universities. But the student, the, the the employee is providing his body and his labor, the act of playing the game. So how would the IRS adjudicate this aspect of things? Because this does seem pretty clear of, well, I'm doing a job. I, I can't go do this in the street anywhere. I got to do it on the 100 yards that you paint on your campus. And I think this would, again, strongly favor employment status. Uh, I, I think the IRS would see this as strongly favoring employment status. Um, and for two reasons. One, uh, what they're really looking for here is who is bringing the tools to the work site? Who is bringing the, you know, the, you know, the toolbox to the construction site? If it's that kind of if it's that kind of an independent contractor, who's bringing the painting equipment to the to the to the painting site? That kind of thing. Um, and here, because the employer is really supplying all this equipment, and they're supplying kind of their own type of equipment. It again goes towards kind of this idea of control, where 
the work uh, where an independent contractor is going to have a lot more choice about what kind of brands of equipment they want to use, what kind of, um, you know, whether they want to use certain equipment in a certain way. But for employment status, they're in, in I, I'm sure in the football example, this is always going to be the case. They're supplying all the equipment because they want certain equipment to be used. Where, and I think this is interesting, kind of in the NIL perspective, because. Let's say that um, you know Boise State University. We have a deal with Nike, a uh, pretty pretty firm deal, pretty lucrative deal with Nike to supply uniforms, to supply a lot of different equipment. But let's say that an athlete has a deal with Adidas. If the athlete was an independent contractor, they'd be able to wear Adidas no problem. But here, the uh, Boise State University is certainly going to have an objection to athletes wearing certain types of Adidas equipment on the field. They're going to insist that they wear Nike. So that again goes towards this control element, this overall element of control. And to the point that you made about, uh, well, they're bringing their bodies, they're bringing their labor. Traditionally, that doesn't really matter because every employment relationship, you're bringing your labor, you're bringing your body, you're bringing your brain. Um, even if you're sitting in a cubicle doing something that is a quintessential employment relationship, you know, working a nine to five, nobody's questioning whether you're an employee or an independent contractor. It's something where you're still bringing yourself to the job. That's not really the equipment that's being talked about here. It's other forms of equipment like a laptop, like football pads, that kind of thing. Yeah. Are there cases where you could have someone that is clearly an independent contractor, but there could be a reasoning for using specified equipment, whether that's you know compatibility with what is on the client site or security or things like that? Absolutely, and it's important to note, um, and I think to answer this question, it's important to note that all of these tests are going to be balancing tests. And what that means is that there's going to be a number of different factors. We've already gone through a few of them already, uh, supplying equipment. Um, we've gone through the amount of control that they have over kind of the who, what, where, when, um, all these different factors. And they're really going to weigh against each other, where maybe, you know, if there's seven factors, and it really depends on the test how many factors there are, if there's seven factors, if it's four in favor of employee and three in favor of independent contractor, then it's going to be an employment relationship. So it might be a situation where, <clears throat> yes, it's an independent contractor, but the employer really wants to, uh, you know, have a particular brand of equipment, a particular type of equipment on site. Maybe it's going to be six to one in favor of independent contractor status, or five to two or four to three, and then it's still going to be an independent contractor status despite that individual factor not being satisfied in favor of independent contractor status. No, Professor, that does make a lot of sense. The The last part we want to kind of go over on the uh, the form here, because the, the fifth part is service providers or salespersons, but part four is relationship of the worker and the firm. And then the number one question is here, are benefits made available, yes or no? So this is where the student athlete would maybe answer like, well, yeah, I get a scholarship. Yeah, I, I get I get a meal card, I get books, I get room and board, all those can be considered benefits if they maybe don't see them as compensation. But then the question becomes, can the firm or worker end the work relationship without penalty? And this is where there's an imbalance in power to me, and I'm not a lawyer, but, the school can end your scholarship without any penalty at all. But a player may argue, well, you know, I this coach wants me to play hurt. The doctor said I'm says I can't go back out there until I'm healed, but the coach says I gotta go back out there. So I didn't play. So he he the penalty was he cut me from the team. 
They cut off all my benefits after I got a medical note saying not to go play. How would this be adjudicated, the question of a relationship between the worker and the firm for student athletes and maybe the university that they are are enrolled at? So I don't know if that would necessarily go towards this specific employment test, though I do think it would be something that would strongly lean towards control. If you're talking about, again, this overriding control factor, how much the employer uh, controls the worker and how much control the employer has over the worker, um, an independent contractor or really any kind of non, um, non-employee, non and this is important for a particular reason I'll get into in a second, is going to have a lot more ability to be able to say, no, I'm not not feeling up to working right now. Um, you know, you're not my you're not my employer. You're not my, you know, uh, kind of day to day employer. So I don't feel the need to necessarily tell you, you know, to necessarily use a sick day or something like that. It's something where it's just like, you know, it's going to be in our contract. that I'll be able to say, you know, I, I won't be able to play today. I won't be able to do this today. Um, but in the context and, you know, a lot of this I've kind of been hedging a little bit and saying, well, the NCAA is not arguing that they're independent contractors. No, 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 they're not arguing that they don't have this level of control. It's kind of they're arguing kind of the, for this nebulous third category, the student athlete category. But that gets really important here because what the NCAA is arguing throughout consistently is that being a college athlete is a voluntary relationship. It's something where... Um, well, you know, it's an extracurricular activity. It's something where the athlete, uh, you know, has the ability, you know, they can do it if they want to, they can do it if they don't want to, and it's not really going to, you know, be a problem if they decide that they don't want to do it anymore. It's, it's strictly voluntary, and therefore it can't be work. Well, first of all, I push off and say, well, all work is technically voluntary. You can decide to not do a job and not get paid for it, and that's, that's all fine and dandy, but in here... The fact remains that the scholarships are uh, largely based on whether the, the college athlete plays sports or not. So in that sense, it's kind of the same thing as an employment relationship. And in particular, for the example that you gave about, um, you know, well, you know, the coach is forcing me to play hard, you know, because what's happening there? Well, the, the coach is probably threatening to pull the scholarship. Yes, NCAA rules don't allow for uh, scholarships to be pulled in, in cases of injury, but good luck proving that in a lot of cases or, you know, in something in a, in a scenario where I think a lot of employees can relate to this, well, maybe they're just going to find another reason to, to, to cut the player instead, to take away the scholarship player, the, the player scholarship instead. And, you know, they're not going to, they're, they're not going to say it's based on the injury, but, you know, um, it'll be a different reason, but we all kind of know where that, where that is. I was like, or so, saying we're not going to give you playing that, time and, you know, similar to the "we won't fire you, but we just won't schedule you" type thing, and wait for you to quit. Exactly, exactly. And in the world of NIL and the world of transfer world, that's a really big deal because if you're not playing, you're not going to be able to, you know, get NIL deals because you're not going to be visible. You're not going to be visible to other coaches who may want to, um, you know, may who may want to get you on the transfer portal and offer you more NIL money if we're kind of acknowledging that aspect of the transfer portal. Um, it's going to be a, a major kind of detriment here. And also, if you're not playing, if you're not able to crack the starting roster, well, maybe they're going to take away your scholarship at that point instead because these scholarships are one-year commitments by the school and they can pull them at the end of a year and, well, then you're just out of luck. So, again, is it is it actually voluntary? I would I would certainly push back on that. 
Professor, I wanted to ask this. Now that we've gone through maybe how it can lean toward being employer, how it could maybe not, I, I, through the last little bit of time we have with you, I want to ask the following question. Sure. Using the legal mm -hmm. system and maybe possibly a multi-pronged attack, how can student athletes use maybe this form in the IRS to say, well, they classify us as employees, maybe going through NLRB and the Department of Labor and saying, well, they said we can unionize, which only employees can do, or maybe even some sort of third option using the legal system. What is the path forward for student athletes getting the best possible outcome for themselves and future student athletes coming behind them? Well, I think you're already seeing it. I think you're already seeing it through, you know, kind of the multi-prong approach of litigation that you have right now. You have the Johnson case, which is uh, very much in kind of the realm of wage and hour law. It's minimum wage and overtime. It's, you know, we are employees, so therefore we need to be able to make it minimum wage and overtime, and you're violating that by only giving us a scholarship. Uh, you also have the NLRB cases, which are arguing for unionization, which would lead to collective bargaining, which would lead to athletes having a formal uh, codified, legally enforceable, uh, you know, kind of method of kind of providing their own input into how the employment relationship looks. You also have the antitrust litigation, which is looking to attack certain particular unilaterally imposed benefits or unilaterally imposed um, kind of restrictions on athletes, uh, you know, kind of in the in the name of amateurism. That uh, you know, arguably, and and as we're seeing in a lot of these cases, do legally do violate antitrust law. So piece by piece, brick by brick, you are kind of tearing down the foundations of amateurism. Whether you see that as a good thing or a bad thing, it's certainly something that's giving athletes a lot more power, a lot more, a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility. And it's something that, um, you know, as time goes on and as the NCAA continues to refuse to acknowledge this employment status and refuses to go to the collective bargaining table, it just gives athletes more and more and more because the status quo gets higher and higher and higher and higher. If the NCAA had um, acknowledged kind of this employment status back in 2015, 2016, when the Northwestern litigation was, or the Northwestern NLRB case was going on, you could probably you could probably imagine that the collective bargaining agreement would look entirely different. It would be something where um, this NIL wasn't part of the status quo. It would be something that college athletes would have to negotiate for. So therefore, it would be just another thing that they had to work for instead of saying, okay, well, you want to infringe on our NIL rights that we already have? Well, you're going to have to give something up instead of us giving something up in order to get NIL rights. So um, just by doing kind of, by taking these different bricks out, you're seeing a lot more athlete power and uh, a much stronger collective bargaining agreement if and when it does come to that. Professor, I do have one question here because the NCAA exists in this, they want to stay in that quasi gray area. They want to stay outside of a simple yes or no, because it may affect their power, their ability to interact with things. The main crux of all this is still the eligibility that the NCAA allows. What changes could the NCAA make to that eligibility framework if, say, the athletes do get more poor power, do get more ability to make decisions, they can transfer as they please, what have you, what would the NCAA change and say, well, we're not going to let you stay forever? What would happen then? Well, and I think that's, it's an interesting question because that is kind of the acknowledged next step here is 
what happens if you're going to see an antitrust case that says uh, we're challenging the, the fact that the NCAA only gives you five or six years of eligibility? You know, what happens if you want to be someone who, um, you know, wants to continue to keep playing college sports and just keep getting master's degree out of master's after master's degree, maybe you can go get your PhD while playing college sports and still be eligible because this, you know, this five to six years uh, eligibility framework has been shut down and, you know, now you can do it just as long as you're in a degree program or maybe even that, that gets struck down as well. And that's where kind of, and that's kind of what I was, what I, what I was kind of referring to when I was saying that, you know, as you're seeing things get torn brick by brick by brick, you get a stronger collective bargaining agreement, uh, eventual collective bargaining agreement in favor of the athletes. So if the NCAA wanted to really stop this, they could, you know, they they could acknowledge the collective bargaining relationship. They can acknowledge the employment status. There are a lot of a lot of hurdles to to climb before that's even possible. Um, you know, you actually have to have the, the athletes unionize, which they have to want to do. Um, but that would be a way for the NCAA to be able to protect a lot of these things in the same way that the NFL is able to have a salary cap and a draft and uh, restricted free agency, all three of which would be clear antitrust violations under, uh, under, under antitrust law. But because they're part of a collective bargaining agreement, there's an antitrust exemption available to collective bargaining agreements that allows professional sports to be able to protect these key, um, protect these key competitive balance and, uh, in the case of the NCAA, kind of their amateurism, uh, or if you still want to call it amateurism, their amateurism restrictions. But it requires some kind of antitrust exemption, and that's why instead of acknowledging the collective bargaining agreement, you're seeing uh, the NCAA go in front of Congress and try to get the antitrust exemption through Congress instead. Professor, I want to ask this question. Um, where can, if I know you're writing about this, where can we get some more of your writings, others who you follow that are doing good writing on this, legal research and scholarship that is being done on this? Who would we turn to to keep an eye on this particular aspect of things going forward? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Um, uh, just my name, but the C in the middle, Sam C. Ehrlich is my username. Um, I frequently uh, tweet about uh, legal issues in college sports. I retweet some really great people who do as well. Um, some other great followers would be uh, John Holden, uh, John Sports Law, Mark Edelman, uh, Thomas Baker, Elisa Jessup, um, just to name a few. And I'm Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna regret even naming a few people because there's so many more people who do other great work as well in this space. Uh, with with the proliferation of kind of the legal aspects of college sports, and as it's becoming more and more popular, there's more and more voices that are adding a lot to this, and uh, it's really great to see. Um, uh, you can also find my writing. Um, you can search for my name on Google Scholar, and you can find my. I have a profile there that allows you to kind of see all the. All the works that I do, um, some of them are paywalled, but uh, shoot me an email at sam sam Ehrlich at boisestate.edu, and I'd be happy to send it to you for free. Don't tell the publishers, but <laughs> you know, there's not a lot they can do about that anyway. And uh, also, just um, I'm happy just to, to, to chat by email uh, about anything. If you have any questions, any follow-up kind of kind of questions about that, um, if you're if you live anywhere near the Baltimore area, I'll be at a great conference called the Sport and Recreation Law Association in February, um, SIRLA, Sport and Recreation Law Association. It's giving me and a, a lot of other really great sports law scholars talking about a lot of these legal issues uh, 
encourage you if you're in the area or if you could travel or willing to travel to the area to check that out. It's going to be a really great event. Um, and other than that, uh, follow me on Twitter and uh, engage in the conversation. I'm always happy to chat about things. Well, we really appreciate it, Professor Ehrlich. Uh, how many wins will the Minutemen have in 2024? Well, I think things are trending up. I think Don Brown, I think Coach Brown's, uh, I, I think his influence is really starting to hit home. I mean, you, you need a few, you need a few uh, freshman classes to come in to really set a new culture. I think they're going to get to four or five. I don't think they're quite going to be bowl eligible yet, but I think they're going to make some really positive trends in the right direction. I mean, they beat New Mexico State last year. Uh, things kind of fell apart towards the end, but I think they're getting closer, and I think um, I'm excited to see what the future holds for the UMass Redmen. And I'm going to ask this, and this is a personal indulgence. We talked about some marching band stuff last week. Of course. And uh, we talked specifically about DCI. And uh, Jeff, you'll help to help me remember, but the North Carolina DCI, uh, one of their uh, high-ranking folks Carolina is now. Carolina Crown, yeah. The Carolina Crown, they are now working for mm -hmm. the million-dollar band at, at the University of Alabama. So I want to ask you this. How much proliferation of DCI talent is making its way into college marching band proper uh, since your time as a DCR marcher. So over the past uh, uh, decade or so, how much of that has filtered into college college marching band? Well, if anything, I'd say it's the opposite. I think a lot of DCI's talent is coming from uh, from college bands. and But I do think, you know, with the relationship that Carolina Crown has with the Million Dollar Band, for example, Michael Klesch has been teaching in Alabama for a long, long time. Uh, you're starting to see some more uh, solidified agreements in that space. Um, you know, it used to be a little more random, like I, I marched the UMass Minutemen and then I marched Madison Scouts, which, uh, I mean, there are, there are a couple of us who, you know, were in the same connection who, um, who marched UMass and also flew over to, um, to, to, Mad to Wisconsin to march Madison Scouts. But uh, I, I think it, you, you might start to see a lot more of these kind of con these firmer connections between the, the DCI drum corps and college bands. And uh, I think you'll see a lot of lot of you know kind of these communal relationships in that regard well professor thank you for your time as always we'll be in touch with you uh, it's going to be an exciting couple of months in the uh, sports legal realm but uh hopefully you'll be able to come back and uh, help absolutely. us walk through it if you if you have the time absolutely anytime guys great talking to you thank you professor take care of course All right, Jeff. So that was Professor Ehrlich. What a good conversation, as always. Yep. N never a dull moment in, in our interesting legal times. Yes. Uh, it, I don't understand it, and that's why I'm glad there are people that do, so we can ask them to explain it to us. Moving on to the dessert, though. I, I was glad you went and dug some of these up. There have been a number of HBCU coaching hires that have been made with one glaring omission. One job doesn't have a coach yet. We'll get into it. Let's start with Alcorn, uh, Alcorn State University down there in Mississippi. Uh, Fred McNair, brother of of the great Steve McNair, rest in peace, Steve. Uh, he didn't get his contract extended, Jeff. What do you he think about that? He did not, and there was some interesting things with that because he was in contention for another um, head coaching job at Texas Southern, which went to someone else. We'll talk to, about that we'll in there. a little bit. Um, but 
he had a ton of success, uh, 48 and 33 with five division titles and two SWAC um, titles at Alcorn. So it's an interesting scenario of him kind of trying to angle for a different job in spite of success and then kind of left out in the open. Um, Cedric Thomas, who is on staff as defensive coordinator, has been at Alcorn for quite a bit of his career, uh, multiple stints. Um, I believe he is of, also a, uh, I believe he is an alumni. I'll, I'll double check that, but carry on. Yeah. Um, at, in a couple different assistant roles at, at Alcorn and, and basically his whole career has been at, uh, HBCUs other than really a short stint at Southern Miss as a defensive back coach and a couple of stints in the community college ranks. Um, he was head coach at Arkansas Pine Bluff uh, between 2018 and 2019, was 8 and 14, so not super successful, but I think had a little bit more time as a defense coordinator. We'll see where Alcorn goes, and he's obviously falling on a good foundation there. He was he is actually an Arkansas Pine Bluff alumni, so I apologize to Coach Thomas there. But yeah, I mean he's well known in the HBCU world. He's been basically all around the SWAC, and now he's the head coach, his second stint as a head coach in the SWAC. So uh, good luck to him, and we'll see what happens. I do want to go, and I want to talk about this one at Grambling State University. The Tigers have hired Mickey Joseph, formerly the interim, and was on track to be the head coach at Nebraska until um, an arrest for domestic violence in November of 2022. Um, He has a lot of HBCU experience, and I'm shocked that they brought him in at Grambling, Jeff. They kind of did it under the radar, but he winds up replacing former Browns head coach and former Grambling, now former Grambling head coach, Hugh Jackson, who did not win the Bayou Classic this year and uh, in dramatic fashion lost on the goal line stand by Southern. And they uh, they let him go not long after that game. He was there two seasons. This is the second controversial hire. This one under much less scrutiny, but they tried, they did hire, um, Art Bryles as the offensive coordinator at Grambling State. And then they tried to do it during Mardi Gras. Yes. While campus was closed. That's absolutely right. It was a big deal. Um, But now they've hired Mickey Joseph, who I will say this has some uh, relationship with the program. He was an assistant at Grambling under Doug Williams, the uh, uh, first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl with the uh, Washington football team. And then was the longtime head coach. Uh, for Grambling. He was under that staff before he moved up and started getting jobs uh, uh, at the FBS level. But he was a head coach at Langston, which is the only HBCU in Oklahoma. So uh, I'm unsure of what to expect from Coach Joseph, but as long as he kind of keeps his nose clean, so to speak, um, I do expect to see good things coming from the Tigers in the next coming years. Yeah, my questions with him are not related to his experience as a football coach. It Same. seems like he's a, a very good football coach, and anything else is a very different set of questions. And That's still a question on, on whether he should be a head coach, but that is a different set of questions than is he, is he a capable head coach? And and that's a kind of moral question. And I find it interesting that Grambling's tried to do this with coaching hires a couple times in, in a short period of time. Yeah. Grambling, um, 
Grambling is the bully on the block in the swack, and they very much so see themselves in the same light as any bell cow in a conference does. So when they go to hire a coach, they are hiring them for their football acumen. They're not hiring. They they have shown themselves to be less interested, even in the well-being of their own players. At one point, players were getting MRSA because equipment wasn't being cleaned. Uh, the team was riding buses 18, 19 hours, but the administration, so this is the university president and AD, were taking airplane flights. Um, they canceled games. The players did. The players refused to play and had to forfeit games before. I mean, hiring, I don't know that Mickey Joseph is owed a second chance i do believe he should get one at some point if he has they have some sort of agreement at grambling i it's as good a place as any but uh we take dv very seriously around here and i i any questions to his credibility are i think ones we should keep an eye on yeah move it down the list gonna move over to the miak now about time you showed the miak some love jeff the dean of this the This is what happens when I do this in alphabetical order, by the way. <laughs> I know. I'm Other just... than the last one, which is weird, but everything else is in alphabetical order. Correct. Uh, so the dean of the HBCU game, Coach Oliver Buddy Pugh, has retired after 20 years as the head coach of South Carolina State, the Bulldogs. Uh, he has been replaced by Chennis Berry, who was originally uh, the head coach over at Benedict College, a HBCU in the SEAC in Division II, won two conference titles in three years and made it to the second round of the D2 playoffs. Um, so impressive tenure there. He has also been a head coach at Morris Brown, another HBCU in Georgia, Kentucky State, Fort Valley. Valley State, the land grant in Georgia, North Carolina A&T, which is in North Carolina. Uh, they, uh, He was on some of those teams that weren't very good. And I can tell you for in the middle of that 2003 to 2005, in 2004, they didn't win any games. And I know because Norfolk State's only win came against the North Carolina A&T Aggies team that I did not go to. But uh, then was the OC at Morgan State. So this guy even coached my second alma mater at Howard. He was the OC there. I think this is a good pick for South Carolina State. I think this guy, yeah, he, he's a great pick. Yeah, he he knows the landscape, and his resume at Benedict is is pretty impressive, even though it's relatively short. The, the success is pretty great. So um, I think he's a – seems to be in good position to follow up on, you know, one of the most successful tenures in, of kind of current head football coaches in, in the HBCU landscape. Absolutely. The Southern Jaguars, uh, they have hired Terrence Graves, who was the interim. Um, they had a coaching change in the middle of the season there. He took over and then kind of carried them to the end of the season. Uh, he won the Bayou Classic and then has been given the job. He was the interim at Grambling two years ago. Um, so he has been on both sides of the Bayou Classic. Very interesting state of affairs there. But that being said, he was also defensive backs coach at my alma mater, Norfolk State University in 2003. So he has been all over the HBCU landscape, including Mississippi Valley and Winston-Salem State. I mean, he's done it all. And I, I think he'll be a good choice for Southern. Granted, Southern is chasing what they watched happen at Jackson State. So at one point, they had won eight in a row against the Jackson State Tigers and have now lost two in a row. 
uh, excuse me, three in a row, two under Coach uh, Dion, Coach Sanders, Coach Prime, and then one under the new coach that's down there in Jackson, Mississippi. So I think Coach Graves is a good choice, and I, I'm excited to watch him go forward and uh, into the coming season. Yeah, and I before I move on to Texas Southern, I do find it really interesting that for the most part, everyone we've talked about for these hires have, are people with very extensive experience in the HBCU landscape and kind of spent most of their careers there. Um, really, the Mickey, Mickey Joseph that's had a little bit of um, back and forth between there and, and some places like Nebraska. I do wonder if that's a unique skill set that you really need to succeed at HBCUs, or is that some level of it's hard to move between different kinds of institutions? That's a really good question. Um, what happens is the HBCU community of coaching is very small. Um, at the div- at the Division One level, so let's say FCS, there's only 21 jobs, um, six in the MEAC, 14 in the SWAC, and then Tennessee State in the OVC, the Ohio Valley Conference. That community of coaches isn't that big and so everyone knows everybody and there's a level of comfort that the ad's who are also a very small community it's only now 21 hbcu ad's at fcs they all know each other and they all try to stay in that what made the jackson state hire work excuse me i think is very clearly coach prime dion is one of one as people have alluded to in the past he's going to be a good coach and i don't think it matters where he winds up Um, When it has something like this, you need someone who's going to come in and understand what they're getting into. It's part of why Coach Ed Reed didn't work out at Bethune-Cookman is I don't know that he quite understood what he was getting into and didn't have the staff around him to kind of work through that. He brought the people he knew, not the people that knew Bethune-Cookman. And there's got to be a I think for the start, a more of a balance toward the knowing the landscape than knowing ball. That that's a personal assessment. I can I am open to being wrong, but most HBCU coaches, head coaches, they've earned their stripes, worked their way up, gotten experience, and then they come back to do the best they can. And a good example of that is Coach Eddie Robinson at Bama State, uh, Alabama State's head coach, had a ten-year career in the NFL was a coach in the NFL, and then said, my alma mater, mama's calling. He took a pay cut to go be the head coach at his alma mater. And, you know, that's that's the kind that we're looking for at the HBCUs because it's you're not going to get paid a lot, you're not going to get a lot of resources, and you have to understand that going in. Yeah, and I kind of want to contrast that a little bit with, so Texas Southern, they hired, or they fired Clarence McKenney with a 12-35 and 35 record and hired... Chris Edward Dishman, um, who is a Pro Bowl quarterback, a Purdue Boilermaker, um, and has extensive coaching Boiler experience. Up. He's been a coach since 04. Here is where he has coached. Um, these are all as assistance roles, either as deep uh, defensive backs coach or defensive coordinator. Uh, the Bo- Berlin Thunder, Menlo College, the Chargers, Baylor, the Arizona Cardinals, the Montreal Alouettes, the New York Guardians, IMG Academy, the New Jersey Generals, the Vegas Vipers, and he's now at Texas Southern. So he's a lot of coaching experience, most of it out of college, and none of it in at HBCUs. 
which is very much unlike any of the other hires we've discussed. Yeah, and I Texas Southern is always going to be a maverick program. I mean, this is where Michael Strahan went to school, right? They have produced NFL talent in the past. They are a proud program. They will be looking for the best possible candidate. But to your point, Fred McNair was in the in the mix for the Texas Southern job, someone with a lot of HBCU experience. And I think he lost out for one reason or another. I I think Texas Southern will be fine, but I think this is a good hire. I sometimes you gotta bring in something different. And yeah, that can lead results. Yeah, and, and the other thing is everyone that we've discussed has been people with pretty long resumes. Yes. Um of of coaching. It's I think we had a couple years of trying to follow the Deion Sanders, let's find a really charismatic guy that maybe didn't have a ton of experience. And it looks like it's almost shifted back to people with kind of very traditional coaching resumes. That'll change. I I do think someone else will. And I will say this. Coach Eddie George at Tennessee State was also no HB, no coaching experience. And then he took the job at Tennessee State. And here we are. So I, I think those things are still going to happen. I just don't know if we'll have another Dion come in. That's really kind of where we're at. And finally, Jeff, you have one that's unresolved. The Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University uh, 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 Rattlers, excuse me. Sorry, uh, Rattlers. Forgive me, Rattler Nation. Um, Coach Willie Simmons has left. He is now at an assistant role at Duke. We can put that to the side. They still don't have a head coach. What's going on down there? So the um, VP of Intercollegiate Athletics, uh, Tiffany Don Sykes, had selected a head coach um, that, or a head coach candidate that she was intending to hire. Um, that's Sean Gibbs, who um, is currently at Fort Valley State. Um, and after this whole saga, he's now received a coaching uh, contract extension, um, which is HBCU. It's at the D2 level in Georgia. Um after it became clear that's who she was targeting, the Alumni Association gave a vote of no confidence to her, as well as to the potential hire of Coach Gibbs. And they've now asked, and it, it looks like they're going to reopen that search and are looking at some other names. Um, the players kind of prefer an internal, the current interim, um, James Cozy, Um to stay on, they've got a really great relationship with him in the locker room, and this is obviously a very successful um, program at FAMU that just won the Celebration Bowl. So it's a very weird situation. It's not that weird for Florida A&M. <laughs> so they're always in some some sort of scramble or another, and... Uh, I'm under the impression that they will figure it out one way or another. Yeah, and I mean, the foundation that anyone coming in is is very strong. And part of that is actually um, Tiffany John Sykes has done a really great job in her one year is in that um, AD role, um, particularly with some of the off-field challenges that, that they've had kind of helping the coaches deal with um, some academic issues. So it's really interesting that 
she's kind of in in the hot water she is with the decision making but at the same time i think that they've got a great foundation it's very possible that that coach cozy could do a good job if they promote him as well and we'll kind of see where where things go although timing can get a little funky now that we're kind of mid january in there they've got an open open head coaching role but we'll we'll see how that goes if anybody can figure it out, it'll be it'll be the Rattlers. So I'm not worried about it. They'll get a coach and it'll be good to go. And as Coach Gaither said, I like my young men to be agile, mobile, and hostile. And uh, I've tried to work that into every episode since they won the Celebration Bowl. So hope you enjoy that, Rattler Nation. Um, <clears throat> Jeff, I, that'll bring us to the end of our show here, I think. Anything you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? Um... I know we are deep into the Australian Open. We sure are. Um, I don't know how much of of that you've been watching. I've been watching a little bit, um, kind of starting my day, which there's been some controversy of that sort of thing because we had a number of matches finish after 3 a.m. local in Melbourne, including kind of one of the matches I really enjoyed, um, Rusevori, uh Medvedev, which Medvedev won after it going um, full sets with a really impressive uh, comeback after being down two sets. Um, two sets and tiebreakers, I might add. Two, yeah, two sets and, t- and there were two tiebreakers. It was it was incredible match. Medvedev, though, in a post-match interview, said that he probably, if he was a fan in the stands, would not have stayed because of that. It started quite late in the evening and it ended very late um which is why i could watch that at somewhat normal waking hours here in the u.s and a lot of the matches have been there have been a lot of 11 p.m local in melbourne starts of matches that have drawn a little bit of controversy um in in the tennis world Correct. And it looks like even today we've got uh, matches that will start off at 9.30 Eastern, 11 p.m. Eastern, and then a match will start at midnight. So a lot of late night tennis. Uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, I have been watching it. I got to watch some of uh, 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 Rublev. I caught the last 6-0 set and he just uh, he just put the clamps on him. I am excited because we've got a couple of really young players that are trying to make a name for themselves in the Australian Open this year, and that's very exciting because there's a lot of old players who are trying to hold on to their grip <laughs> at, uh, like, 10-time winner uh, Djokovic. Uh, he is just determined not to be dethroned, and so I'm excited to see how that all plays out. Um, but the young guns are coming for him. The young guns are coming for him. Yeah. So we'll have to I'll come back we, to we've that. We've had, yeah, I'll say we're kind of in a mode of transition, both on the men's and women's side of a lot of late career greats, either just recently retired or really late in their career. And then seeing seeing some of the new guard, um, some of whom are very mid-career because there have been a lot of players playing much later than they have historically. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting moment in tennis and kind of, we'll have a really interesting season. I suspect you're right. 
this is always a great start to the year out in Australia. It's always wonderful. Always is. Well, I'll say it for Jeff, since uh, he didn't get the chance to. Boiler <laughs> up and uh, Indiana. Word. They are real excited yeah. about that Signetti guy, though. Coach Signetti, I, I don't know how you... I'm. As their biggest rival, they, how do you feel about Coach Signetti coming from James Madison? I am a little scared because he has proven himself to be a really capable head coach at, at JMU. Obviously, JMU is in a better position probably to have football success than IU is, but um, he's been very good there and very good at, at previous places he's been. So that and as well, there is a real excitement in the program and around the program, and they're doing some very interesting use of social media um, to kind of build that excitement. So we'll, we will see how that goes, the rivalry side. Um, and that's also given where Purdue and IU typically are in the Big Ten pecking order and with the Big Ten undergoing some changes in this upcoming uh, season. It's going to be interesting because the margin of error for probably both teams is going to come down to the old Oaken Bucket game. And if that game becomes a really back and forth rivalry, it's going to get nasty, Um, which, you know, it always kind of is. But although Purdue's kind of dominated the past couple of years, if it kind of gets to the level that a lot of times a basketball rivalry is, um, that'll be pretty interesting to watch. Um, and speaking of the basketball rivalry, as we as we are recording, Purdue and IU are playing in women's basketball, and they've been having a pretty back and forth close game. So, yeah, <laughs> very prescient moment to talk about that uh, particular rivalry. It's almost as if I knew it was happening. Look at that. Um, we're here. The off season is here. NFL playoffs are on. If that's your thing, uh, I had a particularly great outcome on uh, Saturday night in the NFC, the first of the NFC divisional round. Uh, so I am very happy. We're going to keep we're going to keep the forward momentum. Keep up. Keep going. And uh, this is this is the time. Get to know the sport better. Get to know yourself better. Uh, take some time. Take a couple weeks. Unwind. And uh, let's get ready for 2024 and have a great season going in. And as always, don't forget to feed your mascot.